This is Tom Lee, the editor-in-chief of NEJM Catalyst, and we're talking today about the use of incentives to drive performance with a particular emphasis on changing physician behavior. Uh, our expert today is, in all honesty, someone who I consider one of the most thoughtful people I know on this topic, as well as others. It's Dana Safran, uh, who is currently uh, a senior vice president at well, uh, a new company that I'm sure we'll talk about at some other time. Uh, but today, we're really drawing upon some of the lessons that she learned back when she was one of the key architects for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts Alternative Quality Contract. Uh, now, with the advantage of time, I'm sure that Dana has uh, learned from some of what worked and what didn't and can share with us uh, some of those learnings and the principles that she developed at that time that others might be able to adapt. Uh, so Dana, for some listeners who may not be familiar with the AQC, can you give a quick summary? Sure, Tom, thank you. So the Alternative Quality Contractor, AQC, um, was developed in the early 2000s. Uh, we started work on it in February 2007. So what I'll describe may sound uh, to a lot of listeners uh, very familiar to things that they're aware of in the market today, but keeping in mind um, that this was about 14 years ago, uh, what I'll describe were really very novel concepts. And what the AQC did was to um, create a model of payment for providers in our network in Massachusetts who shared a vision that we could and should do better in healthcare, both in terms of affordability and in terms of quality and outcomes. And so this model asked provider organizations to be accountable for both those things, total cost of care and for the quality and outcomes of care for the patient population. And it was a global budget model so that on the total cost of care side, providers were taking upside and downside risk, uh, symmetrical, uh, for the total cost of care for their population. And on the quality outcomes and patient experience side, there was a significant earning opportunity um, based on performance on a broad set of ambulatory and hospital measures. Well, it's really hard to get people to do things that they don't want to do, and it's not a wise thing because you know they will find a way to sabotage it. So the very first challenge for you and your colleagues at Blue Cross must have been to get providers to sign on and then get them to stay in. So how did you go about that? Mm, yeah, so I, I think a couple things, Tom. First is that from the beginning and still to this day, participation in the AQC was voluntary. Uh, and it really was designed for providers who shared the Blue Cross Massachusetts vision that we could do better, we should do better with respect to cost, quality, and outcome. Um, and uh, so I would say in the, in the earliest days, that was a big part of how um, the early adopters of the AQC came to be engaged was that they were philosophically aligned. Uh, but then in addition to that, I think the model itself um, appealed to those who really, uh, number one, uh, felt that they, they would be able to 
manage cost and quality for a population. And um, because of the way that we structured the incentives, and I'll say a little bit about that, I think that they felt that it was fair, that they really had the opportunity um, to, um, to do well financially by, by doing uh, the good work of managing total cost and care, of care and improving quality and outcome. Um, and so I can say a little bit more, if you'd like, about um, how, how we attracted providers um, to accept uh, the, the quality component of the model since that, that was such an important piece. Uh, but let me, let me just pause there. Well, I'd love to have you go into that because uh, I think that philosophical alignment is something that's hard to achieve with large groups of people in general. And physicians in particular uh, can be challenging in this way. So please do go into how did you attract them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and just one point on that. There were some who in the early years said, you know, with with my um, health policy hat, I believe everything you're doing is the right thing to do. With my hat as an executive uh, leading this particular organization, I don't think we're there yet in our ability to be successful. So we're going to wait. So there were definitely some who were philosophically aligned, but not confident that they, they could succeed. Um, but for those who came on board early, I do think that um, the fact that we um, approached the quality and outcome measures in the way we did was a very big part of the acceptance. And so I'll say a couple things about that. First is that um, before we began work on the AQC, I had, um, as a new leader of this new function around performance measurement and improvement at Blue Cross, established a set of principles that we committed to living by with respect to any measure that we use in what I call the high stakes way, meaning we were going to attach payment to it, or we were going to use it for public reporting, or we were going to uh, incorporate it into our products in ways that uh, would either limit the network or, or steer patients further away from certain providers. And so that was, that was, I think, a very important foundation of trust, frankly, um, around which measures would we use and how would providers feel confident that those measures were not just clinically important, but psychometrically strong enough to be up to the task of being used for high stakes things like payment. Um, so those principles were one key piece. And then another key piece was that uh, for early adopters, we sat down with each of them and really, you know, put the, the intended measure set down in front of them, showing that we had both ambulatory and hospital measures that we wanted to include in the accountability. And that for both of those domains, we would include a set of measures having to do with clinical process. So was the right care provided based on, on clinical guidelines, clinical outcomes. So were providers achieving the desired results or avoiding uh, the, the undesired harm and patient experience. 
So those three domains, both for ambulatory and, and hospital measures, in every case, following the principle that these were measures that had national endorsement through NQF, uh, that had demonstrated uh, uh, reliability and validity, that we had adequate sample sizes to, to measure um, adequately and so forth. Um, and it then was a collaborative process of what's missing from this list, what's on this list that you believe violates one of our principles. Um, and interestingly, the list changed very little of the conversations. And in fact, I'd say the one really important, I might even say profoundly important change to the measure set was that both of our early adopters, our initial um, organizations that came to the ACC first said, everything on this measure set is clinically important, um, proven uh, to be fair and, and appropriate to be used in a measure set like this. But some are more important than others. And in particular, don't you think that the ambulatory outcome measures are the most important measures you have here? That is measures around control of hemoglobin A1C for patients who have diabetes, control of blood pressure for patients who have cardiovascular disease or hypertension or diabetes, control of cholesterol. And so, you know, we said, well, of course. And they said, so you should make those measures count more. Um, and that was an exciting moment, I have to say. And we did ultimately uh, triple weight those ambulatory outcome measures. And one of the really important things that happened, Tom, was that those measures, which nationally and in our network had been flatlined at a pretty poor level of performance began to improve quite remarkably so that we went from having uh, the same as nationally about two thirds of adults in good control. So a third of adults with those chronic illnesses in poor control to having fewer than a quarter of adults in poor control in a very short period of time among ACC uh, participants and, and their patient populations. So that was, that was a, a, a lot of information, but that, that's really, I think, a big part of how we got folks engaged was really to have principles at, that were transparent and that I think um, created some trust and then to have a collaborative process uh, before you know, inking our deals. Uh, yes, and I would just like to comment that this is a very big deal because uh, usually people who are having financial incentives uh, implemented for them, they want to be in complete control and they therefore want to focus on processes rather than outcomes. But what really does matter is outcomes. And so uh, through an iterative process with some true back and forth, you were able to get um, uh, you know, physicians to agree to outcome measures and in fact weight them more, which I think couldn't have happened without the back and forth. Uh, you would have had rebellion if you just rolled it out that way. Um, now, one of the, the things I know that you're familiar with is the tension between wanting to treat everyone fairly but at the same time, not wanting anyone to feel like is hopeless because um, the risk adjustment cannot capture how much more difficult their their population is, for example. 
Um, so how did you struggle with that question of should you just have a target where people get the money or they don't, or uh, whether people should get rewarded for moving in the right direction? Uh, how did you deal with that? Mm. Thanks for that question, because that honestly is, I think, one of the most important things that we grappled with and that, frankly, the field is still grappling with. And I think we had a model that worked really, really well. It's one of one of the things I feel very proud about with respect to our model. And so here's the thing that when I when I first arrived at Blue Cross, I already had a perspective that the the newly emerging approaches to at the time what was called pay for performance really were very flawed. Um, they were flawed in two ways that I was aware of. One was that they were generally choosing a single target and you either made your target or you missed your target. And if you made it, you got lots of money. And if you missed it, even by you know hundredths of a point, you would get nothing. And that was so demotivating. Um, and then the other thing that I, I struggled with was that the targets were set in relative terms, meaning it was a tournament uh, between who, who would win and who would lose, um, and not based on what actually represents good care, but what represents, you know, something good relative to how others are doing. Um, and so two things that I did to address that were to, um, number one, set for every measure a range of performance targets. We called them gates. Um, and so, and for every single increment of improvement from gate one to gate five, where gate five was, was the highest gate that we had, uh, there was additional payout. Um, not, it wasn't a, a, a linear curve, it was actually sigmoidal curve. So we wanted to emphasize um, improvement at certain uh, early and, and middle parts of the continuum and not necessarily the final leg of the journey from gate four to gate five. Um, but every increment of improvement, and that, by the way, um, got around this uh, sort of false uh, dilemma that, that was being talked about in the field at the time around, gee, should we reward performance or should we reward improvement? This allowed us to reward both. Uh, and that was really important. But then the other really um, uh, differentiating thing was that we set those performance targets in absolute terms, not relative terms. So it was not based on, you know, the network average or the network 70th percentile, but rather we used a, a, a rather um, sophisticated statistical technique called the beta binomial distribution. I don't want to get too technical on this webinar, but your listeners will understand that what that does is to reveal what would the distribution look like if we could observe truth, right? Because in any observed distribution, there's noise, there's things that happened by chance uh, because of a small sample size or other reasons. So the beta binomial distribution shows you what a distribution would look like if you could observe truth. And because of that, it allowed us to identify what is the outer limit of what would be possible to achieve, not by chance, uh, but, but um, consistently over time, the best that could be achieved. And we set that as gate five. And then uh, we set gate one at the middle of that continuum. Um, and uh, so I think those two aspects of what we did in our, in our uh, performance incentive methodology 
were really important advances and very motivating. And what we saw and what's been published in, in New England Journal of Medicine, as well as in Health Affairs and other places, was even from year one and all the way through year eight, which was the last year that um, has been published for, year by year, significant improvements in quality outcomes um, and even a, a closing of disparity uh, gaps um, uh, based on socioeconomic status. And I think all of that really derived from, from some really um, new and, and helpful principles that, that we put into place with our methodology. So that, that challenge where uh, there's a tremendous amount riding on which side of the line you fall, the, this is how you dealt with it, uh, creating uh, several gates, not just one, and then uh, you know, being thoughtful about the distribution of the incentives that was associated with each one. Yeah, that's right. So other than you know, making it to gate one, um, and by the way, I think I said this, but each measure had this range of gate one to gate five, right? So your cumulative score was, was a weighted average of how you did across the entire measure set. So apart from you know, not making it to gate one, once you're at gate one, there were no cliffs, right? You, every single increment, if it was gate 1.1, 1 1.2, 1, 1, you know, everywhere from gate one to gate five, there was additional payout. Uh, so, so there really wasn't that, um, that kind of terrible uh, disincentive that I saw when there was just a single target and you either made it or you missed it. Ah, so the subsequent gates were not really completely gates. They were just points at which perhaps, uh, you know, the equation might change. Um, exactly. Well, so that's very thoughtful. Now, it's complicated. And um, uh, one of my little lines, which in my, you know, in my simple way, uh, I've used a, a lot is financial incentives for financial issues, like the like the budget, how much was being spent, but non-financial incentives for non-financial issues. So I have been one to argue for transparency on quality issues as opposed to financial incentives, uh, which tend to be complicated and they have uh, a high risk for making people mad. Uh, but you were able to develop, develop financial incentives for quality. Uh, what's your reaction to my simple approach about pushing transparency and non-financial incentives for, for quality? Well, um, I guess I, I have a different perspective from yours. I mean, it's, it's a nice and kind of appealing, simple rule. Uh, but, but I think the challenges I see are these. Number one, um, transparency has worked some, but, but really not worked very well uh, overall to drive improvement in quality or outcomes and not worked at all to drive improvement in affordability. Um, why is that? Well, it's in part because despite two decades of trying, patients just are not shopping for healthcare using the tools uh, that give them transparent information about cost or quality that we put, try to put in their hands. Um, now, I know you might argue and I would agree that providers care though uh, about how they look in those tools. So it does drive some improvement. And I think that's true, but it doesn't drive transformational change. It doesn't, I haven't ever seen it drive transformational change. The, 
the way, for example, I described a few minutes ago, the transformational change that we saw in performance on ambulatory outcomes for patients with chronic illness. I don't think we could have achieved those outcomes by simply publicly reporting or even something that's a version of public reporting where we you know, share provider performance with other providers to try to drive referrals based on, on uh, quality. So bottom line on that part of my answer is, I just don't think transparency really can help us drive the kind of transformational change that we need uh, in healthcare, both on the cost and quality and outcome side. Um, and I think we have decades of, of evidence that show, show us that it, it doesn't. The other part of my answer, Tom, is that um, I'm not sure we can so neatly draw a line of you know, what's a financial and what's a non-financial thing. That is, you know, healthcare is a business and we pay for something. So you know, in our traditional models, we pay for volume and complexity. Um, and uh, that has driven the results it has driven, right? Lots of volume, lots of complexity, hasn't helped to drive affordability or, or, um, um, or control of, of spending growth and hasn't helped to drive um, phenomenal quality experience or outcomes. Um, and so I do think that we have to put financial incentives on the aspects of care that we value. And that is not easy. And we have to more and more with um, the, payment, the evolution of our payment models move away from paying for processes toward paying for outcomes. And you've already highlighted, and I absolutely agree, how complex that is and um, how challenging that is. But one of the, the benefits of it is that it allows us to drive toward a more parsimonious measure set. Uh, you know, there's, I think, a lot of concern, um, much deserved in the provider community about there being too many measures, fragmentation of the, the measurement approaches that different payers use. Um, and when we move to models like the AQC that ask providers to be accountable for the whole continuum of care, from prenatal care to end-of-life care and everything in between, if we're going to measure process, that is just an absurd uh, volume of measures. Whereas if we move toward outcomes-based measurement and we say, you, you are the experts, you are the scientists, you design the process, what should happen for whom, just deliver on, on these outcomes, we can get to more parsimonious measure sets, which I think all deserve. And more importantly, we can actually start to have a system that is producing health outcomes, not just producing health care. Well, for my last question, uh, let me ask that given what you've learned, uh, what advice would you give leaders of healthcare organizations you know, around the country which are just now moving their incentive programs for physicians uh, away from basically RVU-based uh, programs to something different. Uh, you know, some are going to straight salary, uh, but many are looking for something different. Uh, your advice for them? Mm. Well, I guess my advice is recognize that um, this is going to be 
a learning experience and treat it as one. Gather data to see what's working. Experiment with different approaches in, in different parts of your organization or even, you know, create some randomized experiments. Um, fundamentally, we know that if we, if we want these new payment models that systems are, are taking on to be successful, then we do have to have the financial incentives aligned down the line to the front line. Uh, and so we do have to move away from RVU and volume-based incentives if we want providers to truly be uh, partners in driving toward uh, affordability and, and better outcomes and, and better patient experience. Um, but we don't, we don't know what the right balance is and the right ways to do this. And so I would say continue um, to be bold, continue to recognize that, that we do have to have incentives aligned all the way up and down the, the line um, and uh, just experiment and learn and, and share best practices so that we can all uh, continue to improve. Well, Dana, thanks so much. I mean, I think that your grasp of the nuances of use of financial incentives is as good as anyone I know. And I think that many of us will have We'll look back at the end of our careers and feel like during these last, you know, 10, 15 years was when we did our best work. Uh, I know this chapter will be one that you'll always be able to be very proud of. So thanks for sharing your insights with us today. And I know we'll be coming back to you for insights on other topics in the years ahead. Thanks so much, Tom. It was a pleasure talking with you.